0: Hi everyone, it's Bud. It's not easy in the world of music to create your own path and your own sound, a unique sound. Yes, that expression is overused in the music world, but when we're talking about they might be giants, it's appropriate. This is Before the Cheering Started, a podcast all about the journey to success. They Might Be Giants' as John Linnell and John Flansburg. They have been described as an alternative rock band. But categorizing They Might Be Giants is a fool's errand. They make great music. Catchy, fun, funny, quirky, memorable music. They've written extensively for television, including the song Boss of Me for the show Malcolm in the Middle. That song won a Grammy. Their so-called kids' CDs are beloved by kids and adults. John Linnell and John Flansberg first were friends growing up in Lincoln, Massachusetts, just outside Boston. They arrived in New York separately, but by the early 80s, they decided to make music together professionally. And for 40 years, they have not stopped. And so that's where we start this conversation with John Linnell, one half of They Might Be Giants, talking about the long friendship and musical partnership.
1: I think there is a a certain aspect of our relationship that's like that has there's kind of a sibling rivalry thing because we we are obviously fully committed to working together at this point you know and we still like working together but I think we you know I think we're we're uh, we're each challenging the other and we're and we're each feeling sort of subject to the other's approval or disapproval Uh, so that's definitely part of the dynamic between us
0: People have come to New York City for generations in all fields, not just music or the arts, and have discussed how New York City is a way to reinvent yourself. Hmm. Uh, is, is, is that in your case? Was that true? And did you see moving to New York City from Massachusetts, did you see it as that?
1: I think probably less less than uh, it would be the case uh, for somebody, you know, from... A rural place or from the Midwest or somewhere. I think for, well, for me, I was born in New York and, uh, I lived here till I was, uh, uh about eight years old. And, uh, and so my time in Massachusetts was just 10 years in, during my adolescence and I was returning to New York. Uh, you did know, you have Tuesday. family here? Uh, uh, no, I guess not. No. Um, my family all stayed in, in the Boston area. Um, but uh but my memory of New York was part of what drove me to come back here. I just felt like it was uh, an exciting, fun place. And um and I think for John Flansburg, uh well, you'd have to ask him. I, I think we care I think we brought Massachusetts with us to a large extent. You know, I, I think there's something about what we do that still has the spirit of our our time. There and the friends that we made and, you know, the culture that we were uh, that we felt like we were part of in, in, in eastern Massachusetts. Um, but I also don't think they're really dramatically different, uh, Massachusetts and New York. There's They're both eastern states. And um, uh, so we were, you know, we didn't change our names or, or radically alter <laughs> our appearance or anything like that. Uh,
0: and talk about a spirit. I understand it's probably an intangible, but can you put your finger on what that spirit was, what that culture was that you guys were growing up with? Well, in Massachusetts?
1: yeah, I mean, I, I, I think part of it was a sense of humor and a sense of a, a kind of, um, a kind of worldliness that, that adolescents like, uh, to, to put on in a way, which is a, a sense of, you know, I know what's really going on and the And I think maybe, at that time there was a a little bit of a little bit of cynicism or irony about popular culture that we we were both attracted to popular culture and we thought it was ridiculous um (laughs) and we uh wanted to do something that reflected that um and that felt like something a lot of our friends were also concerned with also thought about which is like we grew up in in you know when we were in massachusetts we were living through the watergate scandal and this sense of um a uh, a kind of world that was uh askew that was had had gone sort of um sideways um in in various ways certainly in politics but also in popular culture there was a kind of a sense of of in the the fallout of the 60s generation was a maybe, maybe for us a kind of more, um, a little bit cynical, I would say, uh, uh, of an attitude.
0: Was that a sentiment that you also got at home or was that strictly yeah, amongst yeah, your friends? Oh
1: yeah, yeah, I think it was our, our families, everybody we knew. you know We made fun of advertising and we thought the government was ridiculous. And that was a kind of a pervasive feeling at that time.
0: And is there a moment when you're still in school, still in high school, when you look at music and you think, uh, "This is what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to make a go of this." Um, and is that a is that a conversation you have at home, by the way?
1: Um, well, I think that that my I would, speaking about my family, I think there was a strong interest in doing creative work and um, in culture, uh, just a general a sense of like culture is important and interesting, and 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 being involved in it is a good. Thing to do, and there was sort of a sense of um, almost like a, 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 you can say, like a religion of of, um, creativity. You know, creativity was one of the most important watchwords, I would say. Um, And uh, yeah, I think that was something that was shared by a lot of middle class families in Lincoln, Massachusetts at that time. You know, was that it was? It would be a nice thing to be a to be able to be a make a living as a poet or something like that. You know,
0: so you avoided the uh, struggle of so many people in the arts of uh, having to explain yourself to your parents, and also the parents coming back with the "oh, we'll get let this get, get let this get out of his out of system. system." And yeah, yeah, can... that's a
1: that's a well, that's a really good way of, of putting it. Yeah, I think we we I would say uh, John Flansburgh's father was an architect. Um, and, uh, my parents, my, my mom was a writing poetry and my dad was a a psychiatrist. So I think they had this sense of like, those values were, um, were important and they supported. they always supported me in, in doing things that maybe were not practical career choices, but had to do with, um, pursuing a kind of creative, uh, uh, creative career.
0: Uh, Flansburg once told me that he loved Lincoln mass in, in terms of a place to grow up, but it could be limiting. And if, if you said now I'm in a rock band, they would say to you, you're not in a rock, you're not a rock and roll musician. I've known you since you were five. Did, is it limiting in that
1: sense? <laughs> um, it was limiting in a, in, in this, in the, um, sense of, uh, we didn't fit the stereotype I guess. Um, but I, I don't think that, uh, that never bothered us. You know, we were, we, we, we liked doing what we were doing and, uh, we, we didn't feel like, um, illegitimate. Well, I, I, guess there's always some, there's always a little bit of imposter syndrome, uh, when you're comparing yourself to the people who have influenced you. Absolutely. I think the Beatles had that actually with, they felt like they were a fake version of a, musical act as compared to Elvis Presley you know so i think everybody it turns out has some of that feeling uh but we were we were self confident enough to do uh what we were doing and and the culture uh had shifted in a way where there was a lot of there were a lot of notions of alternative methods of you know i mean we were we were interested in people like Frank Zappa and Sparks and artists like that who were doing something obviously not uh not not they were not stereotypical uh rock musicians even though they were successful and people seemed to accept them you know more or less uh, they were not wildly successful but they were successful enough that we would have been interested in that level of success
0: are there years between graduating high school and coming to new york and what are those years like for you?
1: Oh right. Well, um for me it was brief because I I uh, went to um I went to college for one year and then immediately joined a, a sort of a new AV band in Providence, Rhode Island, uh and dropped out of college and um and then within a few years the that band moved to New York. Uh so I sort of came with with the band uh to make it as a new wave musician, I guess. Uh uh and John came to Brooklyn to go to art school. Uh so yeah, we had a period where we were just here here in New York, kind of uh trying out things and feeling I think sort of like it was exciting to be here and and we felt and we were making lots of interesting friends and um and that there was just a lot of possibilities. Um uh, so it was a very, you know, it was an endlessly um, developing situation for us where every every step of the way it felt like, oh, this is, here's another exciting possibility for us. You know, gradually we, John and I started doing music together in a very informal way, uh, doing recordings. And we'd actually been doing that in the Boston area as well. But again, like not with any goal in mind, just, just uh, for the sheer pleasure of it.
0: So those those early years in New York are they're exciting years? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or is there any notion of man, is this going to work?
1: I don't think we were big careerists. I think we were sort of like, this is fun. You know, New York's exciting. Uh, We both had freelance jobs, um, and that seemed okay. I mean, you know, it didn't seem like a a catastrophe that we were. uh, You know, we were working freelance and living pretty cheaply as you could back then in the, in the early 80s. It was uh, not expensive to live in New York in a, you know, in a kind of modest like railroad apartment kind of thing. And of course we had roommates and that's how you, that's how you live. You ate a lot of Chinese food and <laughs> yes. stuff like that, you know. Yes.
0: Where was your first so, apartment?
1: Uh, uh, in in Park Slope, oddly. Uh, um, we, we had friends who were, um, I don't live very far from there now um but we had friends who had moved into a building in Park Slope. Uh, it was very run down and kind of scary neighborhood at that time, lower Park Slope, um not the incredibly bourgeois place that it has since become. Um but as a result we we could afford to live there and and uh, we knew a lot of other people who lived there, and um, it was like I said, it was fun and exciting, and and the fact that there was uh, rampant crime didn't bother us because that was just a fait accompli. That was the situation, and we were we were ready for that.
0: It would it would create more interesting art down the road. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've interviewed hundreds of people, heard many, many, many stories, and. One of your stories from my previous interview remains, I got to say, top five favorite. And that okay. is, so you're with this band, this other band that you moved to New York with, and then you and John Flansburg decide to become a band. And and you told me once that your family actually, it was the rare time when a position in a rock band was the more secure yeah. Uh, yeah, employment.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think they were a little alarmed that i was quitting the band that was actually getting gigs and making money it and i didn't flans and i didn't really have a plan at that point we were just gonna like goof around and make recordings and i think i was working as a a, a bike messenger at the time so um you know they were probably appropriately concerned that i, I wasn't <laughs> uh, wasn't you know, moving. I wasn't upwardly mobile at that moment.
0: You were mobile, just not upwardly <laughs> yeah, mobile. Yeah. Exactly. But they, they eventually, did you have to explain? No, here's why, here's why I'm going to this you know, I, thing.
1: I don't, I don't recall having to explain it. I, I think they were kind of accepting that I, I was pursuing something at that point. I, you know, I was mm, 20, I was probably 20 or 21. So I, you know, they considered me an adult at that point, And, uh, they'd seen that I, it seemed like I knew what I was doing. The thing I had to explain was when I dropped out of college, that was, I think that was the moment where, um, I really felt I owed them an explanation and I, I don't know if I really had a good one. I think hmm. I just, I uh, just, uh, said I, I didn't want to be in college anymore.
0: You you had your college, your college was, you know, being a young musician in New York city and. Trying to make it work. Yeah. It's a different type of college. Right. Um, Also, I've interviewed a lot of musicians. I've never, except for you guys, interviewed any whose first gig was a benefit for the Sandinista government. Yeah. It's it's a story that you've told numerous times, but uh, for those who've not heard it, how does one get a gig uh, doing a benefit for the Sandinistas in the 1980s? In
1: the 1980s. Well, they they were still a, a new... A newly uh, arrived uh, political group, you know, they had they had. I think maybe a couple of years earlier, they had um, deposed the, uh, you know, the fascist government that had existed before that in in Nicaragua. And um, so there was still this celebratory feeling of of the Sandinistas, where you know they were the good guys at that time. I think that's slightly <laughs> that, that has not aged well, but but. Um, yeah. uh, but we had a friend who was in very involved in politics, and she was one of this she was part of a coalition that was doing things like organizing public events for these different political groups and so she said we're doing a big rally in central park, and they they said they need a band, and now you guys have this new quote unquote band which was just it wasn't even it was just me and John. Uh, Playing organ and guitar. I think that was the That was the setup, you know, and we didn't even have a name. We were just a couple of guys Uh, But we were like, yeah, sure (laughs) We'll do that, you know uh, It seemed like a kind of low-key thing where we just we just had to get our gear to the stage in Central Park and get up on stage and play some songs and nobody in the crowd had any idea who we were and as we've said many times we were we were introduced as el grupo de rock and roll um mm-hmm. because again we didn't have a name uh and
0: uh and somehow you didn't take that name
1: uh going forward I think it was n- not so much of a name as a description uh and <laughs> and uh and but the the response was great we you know we were it was the first time we played in public and a bunch of mostly latin american men and women were there watching us and they they clapped and some of them came up afterwards and said, you guys are great. You know? So it felt pretty good. It was like, okay, this is, this works, you know, we'll, we'll keep doing this.
0: Are there other early gigs in unlikely places Uh, Uh, where you and John kind of look at each other and like, Hey, this is, you know, this is what we got to do in order (laughs) to get to where we want to go.
1: Well, we, 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 there were a lot of really, um, you know, diverse kinds of bookings that we were taking at that time. One, one was in a bar, um, in Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan. And, um, I don't know, it was just somebody we knew who wanted to become a kind of, a, um, you know, he was interested in in promoting cultural stuff. And he said, Oh, so I'm, I'm friends with these people, this bar, and they have a stage, you can come and play. And, uh, again, we didn't, We were not known by anyone, and we didn't have any friends coming to that particular gig. So the unfortunate result was we got on to this little stage up on like 51st Street in Manhattan, and then a large crowd showed up who had just come from a funeral. Uh, And they were not in a celebratory mood. Uh, They were in a funereal mood. Uh, so that was just weird and appalling. Uh, we, I mean, our songs were utterly inappropriate, I think, for that, that <laughs> crowd. So, you know,
0: yeah. Um, is there an early moment when you and John are getting started when you kind of have a feeling, oh, we, we got something here?
1: Uh, I think we always felt a bit like that. I think we kind of felt like we were doing something that was – unimportant but exciting and interesting to us and then we were just going to go out and see if anybody else liked it and you know we had a few friends who would uh graciously show up at some of the early gigs um but it was very gradual what what, what happened was we started trying to play and showcasey things you know little little showcase clubs and bars and eventually uh we got a we got a gig at CBGB and that was okay. Um, not great, but okay. Um, and then we discovered that there was this whole chain of of little performance spaces in the East Village that were not specifically about music. They were for performance artists. Um, and what happened was that we, we got into these places and started playing as kind of what, like we were the musical act on a set that included... Performance artists and poets and things like that, and that was that was like we'd arrived. We kind of felt like we were home at that moment. Uh, and this was probably the middle nineteen eighties, nineteen eighty four, eighty five. We started playing these places, and there were it was just like a, a there was so much great camaraderie between all the different performers. There were drag queens and comedians and uh people doing really crazy stuff on stage um that was just strange and exciting and experimental and uh we really felt like we'd arrived at that at that moment i think we kind of felt like this and it you know again the crowds were probably just like maximum like 100 people at that point but it really felt that really felt like this is where we belong
0: uh, You mentioned performance art, and your early videos are really—they really are performance art. And I I recall, in a way, yeah, Yeah. uh, compelling. And I uh, recall—I think it was Flansburg talking about how you guys are on MTV, but none of your neighbors had MTV. Oh, uh people in the neighborhood. Mm So like the only guy who recognized you was like the FedEx guy because yeah. he had MTV. Yeah. So that's an interesting kind of bifurcated experience. You're on MTV when MTV was MTV. Yep. And and yet nobody nobody in the neighborhood knows because I'm sorry, we don't have MTV.
1: Yeah. I think that we, we were, you know, we felt really famous within this tiny little scene in the East Village. And then, well, there was a moment we, we, we started doing shows outside of New York sometime around then probably 85 86 we started playing outside of new york and there was a real noticeable moment when the first video started getting played on mtv that the crowds just suddenly got bigger in places Mm -hmm. in remote places where we didn't know anybody um that was something we we were really aware of and then by the time we got to california the first time we ever played on the west coast um it was like everybody we had big crowds, and they we didn't know any of them, and we'd never you know been there before, but everybody knew who we were, so that was really different
0: you know we talk mostly to comics about the notion of the first time on the tonight show uh-huh and that's a that's a thing in the comedy world okay. of the first the tonight show with Johnny Carson, yes, you know the first time sure, but you guys had a first time as well we did and. Yeah. What was the experience like?
1: Uh, it, was t- it was totally nerve wracking. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, unlike a lot of other TV that we've done, it was, it was very, um, it, it was, you know, the studio was very cold and uh, there was this sense of being shot out of a cannon. I think as John Flansburgh has said, uh, you know, we, 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 uh, we were just holding on for dear life. Uh, and, um, it was very strange. We, we, I mean, I've said this before, we, we rehearsed uh, the song birdhouse a a lot with the doc Severinsen orchestra who were great. They're, you know, just an amazing group of people and doc was incredibly, he was super generous and friendly. Um, but when it came, but when the cameras started rolling and we were actually on TV, um, he counted it off like way faster than we had rehearsed it, and and it was sort of terrifying. You know, that was part of the part of the being shot out of a cannon part was just how fast we were suddenly playing our song on TV. Uh, when
0: you watch it, when you watch it on you know on YouTube now, it does seem like you guys have an appointment to get to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's also it's brilliant, and I'm curious again under the heading of. Most of us will not go through this experience creating something, you know, in in the privacy of your home or in your head initially. And then you kind of have an idea. And then all of a sudden, it's not like just like that, but it may seem like that, that all of a sudden, wait, Doc Severinsen and this entire band are playing this song. Oh, yeah. And I'm on The Tonight Show. Is there... Is there a way you, how do you deal with something when like the winds are blowing at you a hundred miles? Yeah, yeah.
1: no, I I don't think we know the answer to that, but we don't have any advice for anyone else who is in that situation. But yeah, it was, I think, you know, we, maybe we're of two minds There's part of us that fully inhabited the imposter syndrome feeling. Like we're just, we're clowns, but we've been, you know, thrust onto this stage. And then the other thing was, as far as everybody was concerned, we were legit. So we just played along, you know.
0: Tonight Show is about as legit as it can get. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You've written songs for so many years. You mentioned Birdhouse as as one example. Uh, Do you then and now know when you have something good? Or is the process just much more mysterious than
1: that? Uh, It's a little bit mysterious. But I, I think mostly by the time we get to the stage of having a finished demo, there's kind of a sense of oh this one's good this one will be a good crowd pleaser or this one's you know interesting um <laughs> and it'll be a- air quotes yeah. for the
0: podcast uh, audience yeah.
1: it'll be um it'll be uh, a good album cut
0: um kid cd's here comes science in our household was um let's just say it was played like voting in chicago early and often <laughs> Um, the notion of, Hey, that's a direction we're going to go in. Was that an easy lift for you guys? Was it something immediate or kind of a
1: gradual thing? Um, we, uh, we fell into it completely by accident. We were doing a lot of projects, uh, around the turn of the last century. We were, we were, we'd gotten a gig doing music for Malcolm in the Middle, you know, and that was taking up a lot. We were spending a lot of time in the studio, just generating, uh, um, library music for Malcolm in the Middle
0: won an, won an award for it too,
1: right? We did. We got a Grammy for the theme song, um, yeah. and uh, but then you know we were we had this job of of actually continuing to create music for the first season or two, and and then uh, uh, and
0: subjected parents of generations to the taunt from their kids: "You're not the boss of me." Uh,
1: yeah, we did. Yeah, we didn't invent that phrase, but uh, it was it, it was uh, definitely a good good reference. Um, uh, so that was, that was probably the reason we were spending so much time in the studio. And then we had a lot of other projects that we could work on at that time. And in the middle of that rounder records approached us and said, what, why don't you guys do a kid's record? Here's, you know, I forget $50,000 or something. And, uh, which, you know, covered the exactly the budget probably. Um, and, um, and we didn't take it all that seriously we were we were we were kind of goofing around we thought oh yeah okay we'll do a kids record but we didn't think of which kids it was for what age group or anything we just wanted to have fun doing stuff that we thought would be not inappropriate for kids and i think a lot of people already thought we were not inappropriate for their kids um even the stuff we'd already been doing uh so we So we made this recording and then to our surprise, it really took off uh, like way more than we than we thought it would. Um, And that kind of pushed us into doing more kids music.
0: Um, All the kids CDs are terrific. Uh, Here Comes Science in our household came around right around our time. Our daughter was like six or seven. She was already a science kid Mm -hmm. and she remains that today. That's studying marine science in college. Oh, brilliant. Uh, For a variety of reasons. But I gotta say that the years when we played "Here Comes Science" in the car, it didn't hurt. That's great. Let's put it. Thank you. That's, let's put that's, it that way. That's
1: lovely to hear.
0: And and as this will happen with kids, you know, once she had say moved on to something else, I had not. All right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yes. yeah. Hey, sweetie, do you want to hear "Here Comes Science"? Actually, um, you know, right. Whatever. No. You know. <laughs> um, how does the the creation of the uh, of the theme song for the uh, for the Daily Show come about,
1: uh, boy, you know we. I guess we we started off. I'm trying to think now, what this you know Flans <clears throat> Flans would be a more reliable uh, source for this information. Um, all I remember is that we uh, started off. Um, I mean, I don't remember what sequence this happened in. We did a we did a special. Uh, that was a sort of end of the millennium thing, and we may have done the theme music before then. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not remembering now, um, but oh, oh, I know, I know what it was. the The producer of the the new producer of the Daily Show, or maybe she'd already been the producer. But when John Stewart came on board, uh, she was still one of the producers. Um, uh, was someone who had booked us on the Letterman show in the '90s. So she thought we were a good candidate for doing this new, you know, they're just revising the whole show once Mm Jon Stewart came on uh, and they wanted a more, a more newsy, more official sounding newsy theme. And she kind of knew that we could probably attempt to do something like that. Plus we did a lot of other interstitial music and stuff for them. Uh, So we were, I think we were kind of presenting ourselves as like, Oh yeah, we, we can do, you Know orchestral themes, we can do jazzy stuff, you know, because we'd, we'd done some of that already, and um, that worked out. That was that was um, that's how we got the gig.
0: I'd say it worked out, it kind of took off as uh, obviously as did The Daily Show. I recall you once told me like they were different, you presented something, and like there was one level, oh, that's more of a local news thing, and then oh, yeah, yeah, network yeah. Well, thing. that's
1: that was Madeline Smithberg, was the name of the producer, and and she was. Very, she had very exacting standards, which was great because we started off just doing a midi thing that, you know, was pretty simple. And she was like, "No, no, no, I want it to sound like the NBC Nightly News." And we were like, "But we're only getting paid the amount that you get for the local news, <laughs> you know." <laughs> um, but yeah, she wanted the, like the John Williams version, and so we we just did everything we could to make it sound as as big and you know Ted Coppoli as we could.
0: That's an old official musical term, Ted Copley. Ted Copley.
1: Right? Oh, we we actually worked with Ted Koppel. We we we'd done a uh, a thing for um, what I can't remember what the auspices were, but it was a, it was a, a another informational PBS type show, but on a network, and Ted Koppel was the host, and we did the very serious sounding music for that, which involved like string quartet and brass and stuff like that, and and you know, so we were getting into doing more more official sounding TV music at
0: that point. It's uh, hard to kind of fathom for a generation who grew up listening to music on their phone, mm. uh, anywhere they could be in the world. Right. But uh, how would you describe Dial-A-Song to, to that generation and the origin of Dial-A-Song? Uh,
1: it's a little hard to describe because it's so... It's such an antique uh, uh, kind of technology. The original dial song was a phone machine, which used to be a thing—you a little box you'd have in your house that was plugged (laughs) into the wall. Back in the day, back in in the late '70s, I think is when phone machines started proliferating. Uh, And the one that we chose for our dial a song project had uh, dual cassette uh, machines. It was a two cassette a uh, thing that recorded on one cassette and played your outgoing uh, message on the other cassette, which was great for us because we could get a whole, you know, shoebox full of outgoing cassettes and just swap them in and out. And they were obviously in our case, they were not outgoing messages. They were songs. Um, so you'd call this phone number up and the cassette machine would start playing, one of our songs and then people in the beginning, people would leave it a message on the incoming message cassette. And eventually they were, it was too much stuff for us to actually get through. Uh, But there were some really good ones in the beginning uh, people calling in and uh, we got a message from the New York police department, which I think we put on some recording of ours. And then they were just giving us the high five basically. Um, And then famously there was this woman who, talked for about an hour with a friend of hers who was on another line and of course because they were both talking on different lines they didn't have a way of hanging up on dial <laughs> so we recorded this very very long conversation between these two people and that is something we also put out on a record uh, at one point and uh, uh, I, I direct people to listen to it I, I can't uh, do it justice by trying to describe it but
0: uh, I read that once one time you guys or when you guys would go on tour that the landlord would uh, help out. And, yes. Uh,
1: yeah. It was such a simple setup that she could come in with her key and just take one cassette off the pile and put it in the machine. And, you know, uh, it was it was very simple.
0: That's above and beyond in terms of landlord duties in New York yeah, City. Yeah. That's pretty great. I think
1: I think John had a good relationship with his landlady.
0: That so you and john flansberg continue to make terrific music thank you uh all these years later uh can you describe or can you reflect on what those early years mean to you and do they have an effect on the work that you continue to do today
1: i think so yeah i mean since you're asking and i'm having to think about it um i would say that we go back to the well of Thinking about how to make it fresh, you know, now, and it's really challenging, you know, because God knows we're not fresh. Uh, mm. uh, but you know, it's it is it is always a question of going back to what was it that was you know exciting the first time we tried it, and what could we do that would be like that now, you know, that would that seemed like a, a fresh breeze.
0: It's still working. Thank you. It's still working. <laughs>
1: Glad to hear it. <laughs>
0: John, thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, you know, I did that one-on-one series for 14 years and 400 profiles, and you know, people would uh, or I'd look at stuff after it ended, or other producers of mine who I worked with, and you know, when your guy's name name came up, always made me smile.
1: That's great. Thanks so much, Bud. It's a ple- uh, pleasure talking it, to you.
0: And the music does uh, as well, always. And I'm not blowing smoke in terms of here comes science. Uh-huh. We, we listened to Bloodmobile and the elements and like she learned the elements brilliant. And, uh, and, I, and I recall your story about like you, hi, you hired, like a science good scientist. Yeah, um, yeah. 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 You know,
1: we had a guy to, from the New York hall of science who uh, was really helping us stay on the road in terms of not promoting any, any nonsense. And so we probably got some, <laughs> we probably got some nonsense in there inadvertently, but, but he, he did. Well, this best. is
0: an, and this is also before like the notion of nonsense science actually became yeah, a real problem really, in society. Right. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> anyway, uh, please give John my best. I, will. I hope I uh, hope he's feeling better. And uh, I look forward to seeing you guys on the road at some point soon. Me too. Bye. All
1: right, bud. Great talking, to you.
0: John Linnell, along with his friend and musical comrade for 40-plus years, John Flansberg, they might be giants. They're still out there making terrific music in concert across the country in March, April, and May in a tour that features their 1990 platinum album, Flood. Before the cheering started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing? That's me as well. No extra charge. Thank you as always to editor Lou Pellegrino. We have a lot of exciting episodes coming up, featuring interviews with chef and writer Gabrielle Hamilton, writer Jane Green, baseball broadcaster Susan Waldman, and the wonderful actor and storyteller par excellence, Richard Kind. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.